FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy to have you uh, with us. Um, We got a lot to talk about today, and much of it does not include more discussions about Donald Trump, although we will at some point in the show talk about how the media has been covering the um, indictment, the arraignment of Trump, and whether we think maybe especially some of the cable news shows have gone a little bit overboard and not learned some valuable lessons from when they covered his campaign as far back as 2016. Um, And we've got a good panel to discuss just that. But before we get to that, um, interesting moves going on. Uh, Two fairly well-known, one very well-known leader in uh, Georgia, Stacey Abrams, is heading off to a new position at Howard University. And Bill White, the uh, Buckhead City movement leader, is packing up in Buckhead and moving to the North Georgia Mountains. So we're going to get into that and a lot more on today's show. Let me introduce the panel. Kevin Riley is my partner from the AJC on the Thursday show. We now introduce him as editor-at-large at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you, Kevin? I'm good, and I know you keep calling me editor-at-large, and so I have to confess, I tried to get the title editor-at-extra-large, but I couldn't get that deal, Bill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, whatever your title, we're very glad to have you with us, Kevin. Emma Hurt, Axios Atlanta reporter, is with us as well. How, how are you, Emma? Hey, Bill. I'm good. As I told you all before, I'm reporting to you from the St. Simons Bureau. Uh, ahead of Easter, uh, we're working remotely yep. here and uh, enjoying the weather before the rain comes through. Yeah, how how warm's the water uh, right about now down there at St. Simon's, uh, Emma? Still got that spring chilliness, but you can you can get uh, in it if you if you yeah. uh, are bold. <laughs> okay, <laughs> T- Tammy Tammy Greer is back with us, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Hi, Tammy. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me today. And we're also joined by Alan Abramowitz, uh, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Emory University. Um, Alan, I guess you and Kevin have something in common right now. Uh, sort of, you're, you're both sort of <laughs> retired, but you're both continuing uh, to work, right, Alan? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm try- trying to keep busy. All right, let's get right to it. Um, Kevin, let's start with the Buckhead City story. It's pretty interesting. Um, after another failed effort at the legislature this year to pass a bill that would allow for the residents of Buckhead to vote on whether they want to be uh, independent, uh, and and they lost, uh, Bill White said, uh, that's it. I'm giving it up. I'm leaving Buckhead. I'm heading up to um the North George Mountains, uh, there's a reporting that where he'll really end up is somewhere in Florida. But I guess he's been thwarted time and time again. The question is, is there going to be anybody left to push for Buckhead cityhood now that he's heading out of town? I don't know. Maybe he'll um, he'll get a movement together to have that uh, area of Georgia secede from the state and form its own state. Mm-hmm. Who knows how he'll use his time. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think the Buckhead City thing is ever going to go completely away. I mean, I just think that anytime you have uh, some issue that arises, in particular around crime, uh, there will be an element of people who want to make an issue of it. And of course, there's always a chance that it could be politically advantageous to someone uh, to make a bigger issue out of it, too. So I I think that um, while Bill White will ride off into the sunset, um, I don't think that means the issue will completely go away, whether it will ever reach the status it came near to reaching with a bill and the bill pass, a potential bill passing in the legislature is probably a real long shot. 
Emma, uh, White is leaving uh, with a pretty bitter taste in his mouth, apparently. Um, he uh, had some very harsh words for Governor Kemp because uh, he, he believes Kemp was the one who really quashed the effort to get a vote. Um, and here was a quote. When the governor inserted himself in a shady, sleazy, backdoor kind of way, then the results were clear. He also called um, Kemp's uh, team uh, uh, very petty people. Um, so he's going out with a lot of bridges burned, Emma. He is, but it's important to note that while the governor hasn't you know, publicly um, commented on this, uh, we we know that many people were skeptical of this idea within state government, other lawmakers. Um, I mean, it, it didn't even come near to passing in the state Senate, which, as we know, is generally the more conservative of the two chambers, um, city government. There there were plenty of people against this. It wasn't it, it wasn't just um, one office, I think, that stopped it. But to Kevin's point, um, while secession maybe will will always be a really difficult movement to push this um this neighborhood has has gotten its attention and there are people with real problems and uh, concerns and crime is a, an issue that still um obviously upsets people and will continue to do so and so buckhead has gotten its um its attention from the city of atlanta as a result and and to kevin's point i don't i don't know if that will go away Alan, yeah, I think it's it's dead for the for the foreseeable future. Um, it's kind of interesting to me that um, after putting so much time and effort into this movement to make a, a new city there, that uh, after that movement fails, he leaves. <laughs> like it suggests that his personal connection to that community um, is pretty is pretty weak. Um, that, that he was uh, you know, never really identified that much uh, with the place. Uh, um, so uh, it doesn't help. The, if there is any, any continued movement, this doesn't help. The other thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, the polling um, suggested that the referendum would have failed um, uh, that it, if it had come to a vote. Um, and as time goes on, I suspect that the, that, that part of the city is going to become less and less amenable to, to this sort sort of thing. Um, it's becoming more diverse. Um, it's become considerably less Republican, more Democratic leaning than it used to be. Um, that doesn't bode well, I think, for uh, the secession movement, but you never know for sure. Tammy, um, you know, Emma makes a good point that, that uh, Buckhead has gotten a lot of attention uh, because of the concerns of residents up there about crime in the community, which had a lot to do with why some residents wished they could secede from the city, thinking that somehow they could make crime go away. But of course, Tammy, there are a lot of communities, a lot of neighborhoods in Atlanta that wish they could get the attention uh, to talk about crime in their neighborhoods the way Buckhead has. Thank you for that, Bill, because that was actually my the point that I wanted to make is that um, it's not just um, the neighborhood of Buckhead that has experienced a spike in crime. It's it, it's increased across the entire country. Um, so to focus on that one particular issue as, as that drumbeat um, really doesn't hold as much weight when you compare uh, crime uh, in other parts of the city, the state, the country. I also want to note that um, it's it's interesting that you know, for this particular push, because it's for a neighborhood to leave a city. Um, and then I think perhaps it was a discussion under the Gold Dome of what would happen if another neighborhood in another city inside of the state decides to do the same thing, that this would set a precedent. And then what would happen to those particular communities? So it's almost like this is uh, an attempt to start breaking apart uh, existing municipalities, and then there could be a ripple effect to it. So I, I see the rationale from those that voted against it, um, and it is for the sake of, you know, keeping the state as a whole rather than um, uh, slowly chipping away uh, and creating divisions where there should not be any. 
You know, Emma, just one last note about uh, Bill White. Uh, he, he, the jolt this morning uh, said that um, when he worked with David Perdue, when Perdue was running his primary campaign against Governor Kemp, um, and got Purdue to endorse the independent uh, city of Buckhead, he said, the, this is the quote, the Kemp's ended up being very angry with us for that, and I think they're very petty people. Well, uh, the reason mm-hmm. I cite that, Emma, is mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but essentially you endorse the opponent and you're surprised that uh, the other candidate uh, is angry at you for that. It's just, I love the sort of naivete of that statement. Yeah, it seems a little business as usual uh, to to me in terms of politics and political calculus. People have long memories in this business, but um, I guess we can call it a business. In this uh, section of our society here uh, that we call politics, but I think it also is reflective of something that I have heard from others that um, Bill White, you know, perhaps uh, some think that if someone else was leading the charge, um, maybe things would have ended out a little bit differently. Um, because as we know, he was uh, kind of a controversial figure at the head. And to that point, perhaps wasn't um, thinking wasn't so aware of the political map and the ramifications of a strategy if he wanted to get something done. So to will it come back? Who will lead it next time? If it does come back, that will be something to watch. And, and will they have any more success um, than Mr. White? All right. Well, we'll close the chapter now on Bill White's time as the head of the Buckhead Cityhood movement as he moves off into the sunset to North Georgia. Kevin, um, let's talk just for a couple minutes about another transition. Stacey Abrams, it was announced yesterday by Howard University, has accepted a position as the inaugural uh, Ronald W. Walters Endowed Chair for Race and Black Politics at Howard University. Uh, The university says it's a multi-year appointment that will start in September. Abrams says... She plans to uh, uh, maintain her residence here in Georgia and will travel to Washington. Um, the, uh, the position uh, is one that centers on race and black politics. And so here's a quote from Stacey Abrams on this. We are entering an inflection point in American politics where the conversation of race and black politics will be a central facet. And having the chance to help guide part of the conversation for young people who are studying at Howard University is an exceptional opportunity. Uh, Kevin, none of this rules out the possibility that she could run for office here in Georgia, but this is a new chapter, and it it does make you wonder whether Stacey Abrams has thought about moving on from elected, uh, seeking elective office. Yeah, it sure sounds like she'd uh, rather have some um, something more like a steady, you know, job as opposed to the volatility of, you know, running for office. I'm really interested in what our two college hardworking college professors uh, here on the panel have to say, in particular because um, they are, of course, celebrities in Atlanta because of this show, but they really aren't celebrity <laughs> professors. I think they're more like the. the the, the professors who teach a lot of classes and do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And so I just wonder what what will this really be like for someone like Stacey Abrams? I'm just very curious to get the perspectives of Tammy and Alan. Yeah, well, let me start with Tammy and then Alan. One of the things, yeah, first of all, Tammy, weigh in on what she's stepping into by accepting a position as a uh, professor in a newly endowed uh, chair just what does that entail? Uh, and then I want to ask you both a different question, but go ahead first. So, um, so it's, you know, teaching is a very rewarding experience when you have students who are um, interested in the subject matter, who are passionate about particular issues. Um, that is very rewarding to get that feedback um, and for the students to be able to see Um, how they can uh, impact change in their community. Um, What is inspiring about this endowed chair position is that uh, Dr. Walters was um, a political scientist, yet he was also a doer. Mm -hmm. 
So it was less about the theory of something and more about how you can take, um, you know, your education, your understanding of the rules and structure of government, and then use that to then uh, move systems forward. Um, And so because of that, you know, one could argue that that is um, a prime uh, opportunity for um, Leader Abrams to be in that particular position uh, since she has been doing um, here in Georgia. So it makes sense. It makes sense. (laughs) Go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Uh, No, no. Finish what you're saying. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's just the the arc of the the of Dr. Walter's experience from you know leading um, uh, protests uh, in his his home st- uh, city um, to helping to create um, the National Conference of Black Political Scientists um, to working with uh, presidential candidates. You know the arc of doing and implementing uh, these lessons to move policy forward to expand the electorate. Um, to have civics to be more accessible to communities that may not have uh, received uh, much of that um, in either school or attention by elected officials is very important. And perhaps this is what she brings. So, Alan, let me put it in a political context for you. Um, so Abrams moves into this faculty position, a, a, a obviously elevated uh, position. Um, to what extent do you think a, a, someone who's now basically a college professor, no matter what she's doing, returning to Georgia, that's a, a different platform to try to launch a political campaign from, I would think, as you move ahead two and four years, right? Yes, it is. So, um, you know, if you think about Ron Walters, he was someone who, who as Tammy was saying, really combined uh, a career as an academic with uh, a political activism. Um, so that's something that is uh, can be done, and particularly in this position, I think that would almost be expected. Um, and, and I think this position in many ways seems like a really good fit for Stacey Abrams, uh, and I'm sure she'll attract a lot of students. I mean, she's got a huge profile, and I think students will be very interested in, in uh, finding out what she has to say. However, the difference between her and Ron Walters, Ron Walters never ran for office as far as I know. Uh, he was an activist. He worked with candidates. Um, he was a, he worked on and was involved in, in many you know, protests, um, but he didn't run for office. So run, running for office, particularly in a state where in another state, you know, where you're going to be teaching in Washington D.C. and running for office, presumably in Georgia, that would be very challenging. I don't see how she does that. Um, yeah, but of course, she's not going to be running for any time in the in the in the immediate future. Then the, the first time that would be possible might be in uh, what um, twenty six, I, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so you know that's that's a long way off. Yeah, and I'm just I'm struck by the sort of when you compare what she did four years ago when she lost in twenty eighteen to now, um, she's chosen this role, which while she says she's going to remain in Georgia and will commute, is in DC. She also is joining a nonprofit focused on electrification of rural America as a senior counsel, also based in D.C. And four years ago, as we know, she started Fair Fight, um, Fair Count as well, both that were kind of working regionally, but largely in Georgia. And um, she's not going that route this time. She's taking a very different route instead of, you know, over the last decade, she's kind of gone for the change making in terms of creating organizations and uh, shepherding them towards different goals, um, largely in Georgia. She seems to be, at least right now, uh, choosing a different path for herself in the near future. But it is one to, to Timmy and Alan's point that gives her a platform and a national one at that. Um, before we uh, leave the subject very quickly, Tammy, we should also point out, of course, that Howard University, one of the most prestigious institutions in the country uh, for black black academics. Yes, it is. It is um, <clears throat> a public-private institution. So some of it uh, is private, some of it is public. Uh, the political science department there is a three-tier program, which means it has a bachelor's, master's, and PhD 
Um, and then, of course, you know, she'll be joining um, other uh, well-known um, individuals at Howard University, including um, the dean, um, Felicia Rashad. Um, um, also, Tassahani Coates is there. So Howard is getting, you know, a, a huge platform right now with some notable individuals that um, are near and dear to people inside of the Black community in particular. And so it'll be interesting um, as to, you know, what Howard does with all of, um, with Abrams in particular joining the political science department. All right. All right. So um, we'll bid at least a temporary farewell uh, to Stacey Abrams as she heads off in the fall to Howard University. Kevin, let's talk about the um, Atlanta Police Training Center for a few minutes. Uh, It got in the news this week, sort of in a bank shot kind of way. Angela Davis, who, of course, years and years ago was a very controversial political activist, a Black Panther, um, involved in uh, lots of activities that marginalized her, but went on to, uh, has gone on to an esteemed Hmm. career um, in academia, um, continues to be an activist. She was in Atlanta about a month ago uh, to give a talk. And while she was here, the city of Atlanta, I think the city council, uh, voted to give her an award. And um, just the other day, as the AJC reported, Angela Davis said uh, she'd accepted the award. And the other day she said, geez, she had to think twice about this. She'd rethought this and realized that she did not want to accept an award from the city because of the city council and the mayor's backing of, of course, what she called Cop City. So here we see again another example of Cop City, as the opponents call it, of uh, being, being a polarizing force. You know, I couldn't uh, help but notice the juxtaposition of, of uh, you know, what Angela Davis did and said in very strong terminology. I mean, she did not mince words. I guess she's not for mincing words, so no surprise mm-hmm. there. But um, <laughs> she, meanwhile, our mayor has been really passionate in his uh, defense and his uh, work to continue down the path of creating this police training center. I think it just shows how uh, complicated this has become, how many points of view there are, which is, I think, really what we're seeing. There are a lot of reasons that people find themselves against it, and there are a lot of different reasons people find themselves for it. And so there are a lot of people talking past each other, perhaps not even understanding uh, points of view. But the mayor's not backing off. I mean, there's no, nothing has actually changed with the plan going forward to build this thing. And I think that's an important thing to notice. Emma, here's the quote from Angela Davis. I did not consider the implications of my acceptance of the award, given the fact that the city council voted in favor of the construction of a massive militarized police training facility in the South River Forest. As Kevin said, she didn't mince words. Right. And and it is quite a split screen because I I mean, I see signs still in my neighborhood in in Atlanta, um, defend the Atlanta forest, stop cop city. I see, um, social media posts from friends of mine far out in the circle who don't live in Georgia sharing stop cop city Mm -hmm. content. And it is so different because if you talk to the mayor's office, it's like, it's happening. It's happening. I don't know how many times we have to say that it's happening. We're clear cutting the forest or we're not the forest. Excuse me. We're, Mm -hmm. we're starting work. They're starting to prepare to, to build and um, it's and yet the protest movement doesn't seem to have waned. And while he's created um, a task force that includes a lot of people who are opposed to the project to as a way to kind of channel um, those ideas as a way to I think to control in a way for the out of state folks is something that the mayor has talked about a lot. And I will I will I'd love to have dialogue with people who live in Georgia who live. <laughs> in the neighborhood um you know it's it's not just a neighborhood protest movement it's an international protest movement and to kevin's point people are coming to it for many different reasons which makes it i think particularly hard to counter mm-hmm. ellen mm-hmm. 
Well, that, that's exactly right. I think this has uh, become a, a huge symbolic issue for people both here in both in Atlanta and Georgia and Georgia and around the country and maybe around the world even to some extent. Um, and a, a lot of the divisions that we see there have very deep roots that are not, you know, have little or nothing to do with the actual immediate issues involved here, um, but larger issues of, you know, criminal justice reform, of racial justice, and, you know, all sorts of things that are tied in with this. The question to me is, you know, it, it's pretty clear, I think, that the mayor and majority and the city council are determined to push forward, push ahead with this. Um, and over time, if they, as they do that, um, and as this training center is actually uh, built and, and actually at some point is, uh, is, is being used, will we see that issue fade? You know, is it, it, will people get tired of it? And uh, I, think, I think the answer is probably yes at some point, um, as often the case with these types of, uh, of issues. It won't go away entirely, but I, but I think that <clears throat> it's likely to fade somewhat in, in importance over time. And one other thing I'll just add, I mean, we know this, folks in Atlanta know this, but it's important to remember that Mayor Andre Dickens voted to defund the police in 2020. He was one of those votes on city council, that vote that failed. So again, it's it's mm -hmm. very weird. It's not your standard uh, two sides of this argument mm -hmm. that we're used to seeing. Um, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, I, I agree with Emma. And in fact, um, when she was talking about it earlier, here she paused and, and clarified when she i think she started to say the phrase clear cut the forest or something mm. i mean and as someone who chooses her word carefully all the mm. time i know why she why she did that because to me one of the fascinating things about this is it, the terminology that gets used for example if you notice the mayor and the folks who are behind this thing they never say the words cop city despite the efforts mm -hmm. of those against it to hammer away at that phrase. And I think perhaps, you know, evoke something about it that may not be entirely true mm -hmm. from some perspectives, but it serves the purpose of being against it relatively well. And then the other thing is even the word forest. I mean, people will argue about whether it is a forest in the truest sense of the word. It's mostly an overgrown site with maybe a few old trees, mm -hmm. according to some people. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't, and, and I just watched this terminology go back and forth and back and forth. And um, I appreciate people who are being careful about exactly what words they use. But I think it is an example of what we've been talking about. People can't even agree necessarily what they're arguing about. Um, we got to get to a break. But but Emma, because you're the reporter uh, the uh, out in the field on the show, I just want to ask you one last question about this. Now, I don't go out and cover politicians anymore, so I never covered Andre Dickens when he ran for mayor, and I, I don't cover him now at City Hall or when he runs community meetings. But but he's always struck me as a, a, a politician who really knew how to communicate with uh, grassroots people. That, that's the impression I always had of him, which I thought was one of the reasons he was able to win that race. And yet, it, it's, my sense of this is that the mayor's office completely miscalculated how important it was from the start to build support from the grassroots up. And it, if nothing else, this might be a learning lesson for them as they tackle other big projects. Emma, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it is true that Mayor Dickens, I think, has always been someone who seems to bridge between parts of Atlanta really well. He grew up in Southwest Atlanta and went to Georgia Tech. Just, I mean, his lifespan, for example, just bridges um, what can be a really hard divide to cross racially, socioeconomically, you name it. But um, I do think it, it does seem in a way that this protest movement that was perhaps a fringe group that the city officials, um, of Mayor Bottoms' office and Mayor Dickens' office coming in, maybe were able to kind of push aside as this is just the, this is the tree huggers, you know, perhaps. I'm just, this is me from the outside. Um, it, it snowballed behind, perhaps behind their back and just sort of smacked them and they weren't noticing that it was growing. Um, and I agree with you. I mean, I remember even 
the press conference that um, the city had with uh, Michael Thurman with DeKalb County to announce, okay, we've come to an agreement. This is really, this is going to happen. Here's, here's our compromise with um, activists. And there was so much pro, there were protesters there. So they had to last minute move the location, but they weren't really prepared for the level of um, anger from the protesters that were there. Some reporters couldn't even get in. Um, and it was a bit of chaos. And so to your point, I think uh, now they're very aware of what they're dealing with. The question is, can they can they stop it? Tammy, I'm really late for a break, but I know you want to give a quick uh, comment about that. Yes, uh, it appears to me that with some of the um, activity that perhaps um, the mayor is not addressing specific concerns of the protesters. It's almost just repeating the, the same talking points. So if the protesters are concerned about, concerned about the environment, what is the environmental plan and the environmental impact so that they can demonstrate that they've considered it? Thank you, T- Tammy Greer. You get the final word in this uh, segment of Political Rewind. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Ellen Abramowitz, Tammy Greer, Emma Hurt, and Kevin Riley join me for today's political uh, rewind. Emma, let's just do a quick note on a story uh, you wrote, and I think it's worth talking about because these days we tend to think about uh, dissension among Republicans, uh, whether it's at the state level or uh, in Congress. But you reported a story the other day about some dissension going on in the Democratic caucus at the Capitol among uh, member Democratic members of the House are very upset with one of their newer members. Yeah, this is about State Representative Misha Maynard, who represents um, a good part of it, a lot, a lot of Atlanta, from about Westview, stretching up through past Georgia Tech into some of Midtown. And um, she she took office in 2021, and those of us who followed the Capitol have noticed that for a while that she often will vote against her caucus in committee. And I've been on some pretty high profile votes. And, and last session, there was a pretty big uh, kind of fight between her and the rest of her Fulton County Democratic Caucus over redistricting maps. Um, so that's been bubbling for a while. But the school voucher bill that failed um, last week, she was the only Democrat to support it. And this was an issue that we know really um was really important to Democrats, and it was seems to be kind of the, the last straw where their um, frustration with her continued um, willingness to vote against her caucus on some of these high-profile issues came to the fore. And I interviewed her and some other folks about her, and she says, you know, she's um, always had an independent streak, not been afraid to um, break ranks. Not every part, not one party has all the answers, but I think. Um, there is now a call for primary opponents for her. Um, she has beaten primary opponents in the past, and she says she'll run again. She says she'll never switch parties, but the bigger picture here is, to your point, we rarely see this kind of dissension among the minority party in the legislature because they know that they have power only if they stick together, generally. Um, if, if they have any influence, it comes from sticking together. And so this is something that is not normal to see um, come out so publicly. Yeah, you know, Alan, discipline is always uh, sought after by caucuses, whether it's Republican or Democrats. You have to vote with the caucus uh, whenever possible, as as Emma basically just described. Mm-hmm. But I thought Misha, Misha Maynard's response on this voucher issue raises some of the complications of what that was all about. I mean, a, a good many of her, um, uh, you know, constituents are in communities of color that have poorer schools, they believe. And Misha Mayer said, why should I vote against the possibility that some of my constituents might have an opportunity to send their children to better schools? Now, 
I, we know the arguments against vouchers. You're taking money out of the public school system. But it isn't as if she hasn't raised one of the complicated issues about vouchers. She has. Um, what's unusual here is that, um, you know, she represents a, an overwhelmingly Democratic district. She, it's, a, it's a heavily African-American district. It's an overwhelmingly Democratic district. You don't usually see the dissent within the party mm. coming from that that type of district. It's, it's usually going to be someone who represents a swing district, you know, a marginal district who has to feels that motivated like they have to vote, they have to cross party lines sometimes to appeal, you know, to some of the uh, independent voters or bring in some voters from the other party. Um, that's not the case here. Um, so, you, you know, and it's not just this one issue. That's the thing. I mean, if, if it was just on the issue of school choice, you know, I think there might be less uh, concern. It's that she's been she's voted with the Republicans on many issues. Um, and, and so right. she's seen as someone who's just not, not loyal to, to the party. And that I think, yeah. um, is likely, I think it's likely to bring on a more serious primary challenge given the makeup of her district. Uh, you know, whether it's successful or not, it remains to be seen. It's, it's not easy to defeat an incumbent in, in a primary election, but it, it can happen, um, when the incumbent is out of step. Um, so, you know, with the, with the constituency, so we'll, you know, we'll see what happens to her, but. Um, I think she's inviting a serious challenge. Yeah. Kevin and then Tammy. It, of course, it, as a practical matter, the Democrats in the uh, Georgia legislature have stick together on issues uh, like, the, you know, they did on the school voucher thing when Republicans are, are, are against sort of against something because they have no power whatsoever, except when they can form some sort of like coalition uh, on an issue. And that's why any one vote could be so crucial because they have no, literally almost no power in the, in the legislature whatsoever. To me, it's just very weird that she would vote against the caucus on the redistricting maps, because it, you would think that eventually she would like to be, um, have more influence, uh, in the legislature if she really does care about certain things. So it's a, it's an odd, it's an odd thing. Tammy. Yeah, so um, I guess a, a different take is I see, particularly when we look at either state politics or national politics, you know, that everyone goes in their corners and no one is crossing over to, you know, for there to be understanding um, and compromise. Uh, one could argue that Maynard going with the, the Republicans is maybe to consider, you know, those communities that even if you ha give the 6,500 to, there's still another 6,500 plus um, in order for the children to go to a private school. Um, so one could argue that her working with the Republicans is, you know, to consider um, the her constituents. Um, at the same time, um, I, I think that, you know, polarizing um, politics within the party has gotten us where we currently are, where we're just going to stick together no matter what. We're not going to cross over. We're not going to have conversations to moderate some of these policies that one could argue is extreme. So I am curious as to how Democrats win here when they won't communicate um, or work with. Uh, Ellen, a real quick comment, because then I have another uh, subject I want to start with you on. Well, the problem is that this is an issue in which there's very little evidence the Republicans are interested in compromising. Um, so right. I think that's what the Democrats are perceiving, that this is something that was thrown out. It was even too extreme. Uh, you know, to, it couldn't even pass in the Republican majority. It couldn't get yeah, yeah, enough Republican yeah. votes to pass. So it, this was a, considered a quite an extreme policy, uh, not not a compromise. Mm -hmm. 16 Republicans mm -hmm. voted against it. By the way, one quick mm -hmm. note on this. Uh, she's following in the footsteps of Stacey Abrams, who not as frequently as minor, but who did uh, get a lot of criticism on those occasions when she is minority leader in the House, crossed over and uh, supported Democratic propositions. All right. Um, Alan, speaking of redistricting, speaking of drawing district lines, I want to get your take uh, for a couple minutes and bring in the panel on especially the Wisconsin State Supreme Court election, yeah. where vote, voters, by an overwhelming margin, like 11 points, 
made it clear <laughs> as they as they have in other states that have taken up this issue that they support choice regardless of the Dobbs decision. Right. So now we're talking about another issue, not school choice. We're talking about yeah, no, right, exactly. choice. I'm yeah, sorry. And, reproductive and choice. that was a that was a big issue. Uh that was one of the big issues, maybe the biggest issue in Wisconsin, uh, in the Supreme Court election. Uh and uh, the the Democratic candidate wrote, and she's not technically it's a nonpartisan race, but uh the the liberal candidate uh, won handily here by about eleven points, which by Wisconsin standards, that's that's a landslide. Um, Joe Biden carried Wisconsin by less than one percentage point in 2020. So very, very interesting, very significant rates, obviously very important for in Wisconsin because it will have potentially an impact on all sorts of things, both uh, uh, on uh, reproductive choice, but all, uh, uh, that issue is going to come up, but also on redistricting. Uh, the maps in Wisconsin are very, very gerrymandered in favor of the Republicans, so now that will be challenged. Uh, so all sorts of things are, uh, could, could potentially happen there as, as a result of this. But um, it just, it, it's another indication that the politics of 2022, where we saw the issue of abortion, was uh, very salient and, and really contributed to, to uh, some su- surprising Democratic success in a, in, in a midterm election uh, with a, an unpopular Democrat in the White House, that that continues. Um, and, yeah. and uh, it's likely to continue all the way into 2024. So this is this is, a, and, and Republicans are uh, doubling down on on this uh, 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 opposition to re- reproductive rights and and pushing these very strict uh, uh, anti-abortion uh, laws, even now trying to ban uh, medication abortion, uh, things like that. So um, this is something I think you're going to see um, Democrats, Democratic candidates, particularly in swing states are going to continue to hammer on, on this issue uh, heading into 2024. You know, Kevin, there's something a little bit ironic about the election, um, uh, because as as the panel has already pointed out, as, as Alan's pointed out, uh, uh, Janet Protasiewicz was open about the fact that if she won this seat, she was going to support reproductive rights. And this is a court that since 2008 has been a very conservative Court and ruled against. They they affirmed a 19th century anti-abortion law in the state after Dobbs was issued. Um, they refused to do anything about the gerrymandering in the uh, legislature. But here's why I think there's something fascinating about this. At the same time that Democrats pr- primarily are uh, criticizing, probably to some extent correctly, the conservative nature, the politicization out to the right of the United States Supreme Court, people seem to rally around a state Supreme Court candidate who said, yep, I'm wearing my my positions on my sleeve. Vote for me because of where I stand on politics. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that the courts have become politicized in a way that, uh, frankly, I mean, is as alarming if you really step back and think about it. But let's try to remember that um, in many states, I don't know if it's all states, but judges to the Supreme Court are elected. So whether we like it or not, the voters have a say, unlike the United States Supreme Court. So. So, Emma, what 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 is the first question asked of a prospective justice to the United States Supreme Court in the Senate Judiciary hearings? Um. Are you in favor or against reproductive rights for women? I can't answer that question. That will have to be decided on a case-by-case basis. Yes. And I mean, to Kevin's point, it is interesting to think about this situation in Georgia where we do have technically elected state Supreme Court justices. But as we know, I think almost all of them were appointed because we have early retirements that trigger appointments and kind of really hard to unseat an incumbent in a, in a judge's race that people don't generally pay much attention to. Um, and to this point, I think this, this sort of dynamic hasn't come to the state Supreme Court justice races in Georgia at all, the issue of reproductive rights. But now, as we know, there's a case before them now. And if, if it loses, uh, then defenders of abortion rights will continue to bring cases to the state Supreme Court. So something to watch yeah. if that becomes a dynamic yeah, that's right. as well. 
yeah, we're still awaiting the state Supreme Court's decision on uh, whether the heartbeat law in Georgia is uh, legal and constitutional uh, right now. By the way, I was I should have said that question was asked to potential Supreme Court justices uh, before uh, Dobbs, <laughs> not since then. Uh, let's get to our final break of the show. We'll be back. Be back with more in a moment. Quick programming note, Natalie Mendenhall, uh, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans-Cash came to me and pleaded, please, it's Easter weekend for us. Give us a three-day break. So we're going to do that. We will be preempted tomorrow by an NPR uh, program and uh, back with you uh, live on Monday. You know, Kevin, I'm glad there's two journalists and two political science professors on the show today. We we have just a few minutes to discuss this, but I want to ask everybody for your take on the fact that the coverage of Donald Trump's coming to New York for court, in some ways, and I've certainly expressed my opinion about this, repeated the many mistakes media made back when we spent all of our time talking about Trump first in the 2016 election. He dominated the news cycle then in so many other times during his presidency. And I've got to admit, Kevin, watching the uh, TV networks showing us scenes of Trump's airplane parked in West Palm before leaving, flying out of the airport, landing in New York. It, it just seemed to me to be absurd and as if they had nothing else to talk about. Well, I think they didn't have anything else to talk about. So let's start there. But, you know, I would make two points. Yeah, to me, it's just is a crazy thing for, you know, an anchor to come on the air. And we have breaking news, uh, Donald Trump to be arraigned uh, in four hours. Um, And, you know, that kind of stuff that went on. But I do think it's important to point out whether we like it or not. Ratings were very high. Uh, CNN averaged, according to uh, their own newsletter, 1.8 million viewers in prime time. And then Fox, had, during Trump's speech for Mar-a-Lago, he, they had 6.5 million people watching. You know, so, I mean, it, it, people may complain about it, but they watch. And then a final point in the media, I do think it is worth letting people see this person in action so that they can make their own judgments about it. I'm not suggesting this isn't an important story. I'm simply suggesting that I think we've, I'm certainly, I felt weary this week of having to spend so much time once again talking about Donald Trump, even though, Alan, of course, having the first president arraigned on criminal charges is significant. But how do we find a way to somehow uh, balance this all out and not go so crazily overboard? I don't think we find a way to do that. I, uh, I, I mean, the coverage was over the top, as you pointed out, but I think this was sort of inev- inevitable. Um, the implications, I think, are very interesting because uh, I'm not at all sure that this, in, in the long run, is good for the Republican Party or good for Donald Trump. Uh, however, I think in the short run, it probably is good for Donald Trump, and it puts his rivals for the Republican presidential nomination in a very difficult position right now. And what we're seeing in the polling is that Trump is rising in the polls among Republican uh, potential Republican primary voters. But when it comes to a general election, I think this uh, is not going to help him at all. Mm-hmm. Emma? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a television producer uh, or journalist, but I, I, am, I always wonder, I'm always struck when TV news or national networks cover things that people aren't talking about you know, to the same degree that they're being covered. And this was one where nobody I knew was really talking about this very much to the level that it was getting coverage and that perhaps there's a disconnect there in what people are thinking about every day. And then the other point, of course, is that to Alan's point in the short term, this does fall right into uh, President Trump's hands in terms of painting him as the victim of the national media once again, um, which is exactly what has happened over and over again. So if you think political strategy, strategery wise, excuse me, um, <laughs> that's something that I'm thinking about when I see Tammy, this wall-to-wall coverage. 
but Tammy, we're, I don't know another time, but the other part of this, as Trump was led into court, as we saw the photographs of Trump and then the brief video of him walking into the courtroom, uh, I was also struck by the anchors who felt they could read what was going on in his mind by the expression on his face. He looks apprehensive. <laughs> he looks, I mean, it, to me again, this is just the height of absurdity. It is the height of absurdity. Also, Bill, when we listen to the way that you have uh, some of the commentary and um, uh, former attorneys talk about the case um, and talk about the charges, everyone is speculating. And and because they're speculating so much, they are creating messages in um, the general public. And so they're actually tainting the jury pool themselves by putting all these theories out. And, you know, we haven't even... He hasn't even gone to court yet so that we could have an actual factual understanding of the issues. All right. Um, Tammy Greer gets the last mm-hmm. word on today's show. I don't we're out of time to talk about it. Ellen Abramowitz, so thank you so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Emma Hurt, have have a good time down there on the coast. Kevin Riley, uh, loved having you back with us again uh, today. Like I said, we're going to be off tomorrow, but back on Monday morning with a new live show. And yes, of course, we're going to talk about the Trump uh, criminal charges. But thank you all for giving us a little perspective on it at the end of today's show. That's it for us. For those of you who are going to have an Easter celebration, I wish you a happy Easter. If you're out there at Passover, good for you. And Ramadan is still underway. So uh, that's it for us. We'll be back on Monday. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and take care of one another. Bye, everybody. when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.